Our Father in heaven, I ask that as I try to explain your beautiful gospel, that you would help me to do it well. I'm asking you for the gift of your spirit, and I ask in the name of Jesus, amen. As per always, I'm going to recommend that you ask me for the notes for this lecture because I'm just feeling the impossibility of getting through one-fifth of it. I'm just feeling it. Um, I've written an article called, What Must I Do to Inherit Eternal Life? And you know who I wrote that article for? Me. Because I was just thinking through that my eternal life depends on me getting this right. Does that make sense to you? And it deserves a high priority in my experience. But I don't mind anyone else reading it. And I just want to kind of run through an initial part of it. I have it divided up into three sections. One section are the things that God has done before I was even born to make it possible for me to be saved. You know he's done a lot, don't you know? And then to move to the things that Satan has been doing even before I was born to make it difficult to be saved. And then there's that section, the third one, about my part. But I think when you understand the first two sections, it makes the third section a lot more practical. But we need to get to the third section. And to even get to it, I'm going to have to just go through the first two sections. What's the word? Uh, I'm not going to be able to prove anything to you. Just tell it to you. The proof you'll get by emailing so we have time to spend in the third section. Do you follow what I'm communicating? Mm -hmm. So here we go. What has God done to allow Eugene to make it to heaven? First of all, he knew what was coming, and he cared. And so he arranged to pay for my sin. I wasn't even aware. We weren't aware, were we, when Jesus paid for my sin? He took the burden on him. Jesus did more than pay for my sin. In the process of paying for my sin, he lived a valuable life. What do I mean by valuable? I mean that because I was created, I owe God obedience. So when I do what I'm required to do, God doesn't owe me anything. Have any of you read that in Luke 17? That when you've done all that you've been told, say we are unprofitable servants, we've only done our duty. So I can never earn any merit. I'm obligated to do everything perfect already. Jesus is not created. He was under no obligation. Therefore, anything that he does right is worthy. It's meritorious. And he lived a holy life so that there would be merit that he could give to my account. And that's just a beautiful thing. He paid for my sins. Also, he modeled how to live. The Bible's so clear that this is a big part of why he was here, that we should walk in his steps who did no sin, we read in 1 Peter. There's something else that he did that is less understood and less appreciated than it should be. You know, my parents, Adam and Eve, were given the gift of probation. They really weren't given eternal life in the Garden of Eden. Do you ever think that through? That what they had there really wasn't eternal life. What they had was probation. But wasn't probation a beautiful gift? That probation allowed them to live, and if they would prove themselves faithful to the end of their probationary time, then they would be granted immortality. They didn't prove themselves faithful. And what they lost, they lost for themselves and for their posterity. When they were kicked out of the garden, they lost probation. That means that because of what Adam and Eve did, I was doomed. They couldn't give me what they didn't have. But Jesus, when he paid for my sins, he purchased for me a probation. And in that respect, he undid the very mess that Adam and Eve caused for me. Isn't that beautiful? Besides granting me probation, 
he has granted to me power to live the life needed to pass the probationary period. That power comes in a number of forms. He has given me the scripture, and if you've never experienced this, the scripture is power. I mean that its promises are creative in nature, and that they can cause in me new thoughts and new feelings, and it's just an amazing book. Besides giving me the scriptures, he's made available to us the spirit. We spoke about that. Thankfully, this is one thing we had time to do a Bible study on. So we had that in our first period this morning. The spirit is that gift. Elmite says it's the gift that brings every other gift in its train. So what do I want in life? I want to understand the Bible. I want to have peace. I want to have joy and love. I want to help my neighbors. Uh, really, I could go a long list of the things I want, and they all come with the Spirit. God has, we're told in Hebrews, that are not his angels ministering spirits sent forth to minister to those who, sh who shall be heirs of salvation? God has made angels available to me. I mean, to you and me, to us. That's power. Angels that excel in strength. And then there's something else he's done. When God created the human mind, he created it, he organized it with faculties that would draw me to him. That's beautiful. I mean, he gave me a conscience that would allow him to speak to my heart regarding moral values. He gave me judgment that would allow me to evaluate what's most important, what's least important. For example, I could compare eternity to life on earth, and doesn't the judgment lead me to see that it's more sensible to follow God? And my, my conscience, my reason, really the faculties, those higher faculties of the mind were given to be the guide of the will. So here's my ability to make decisions, but how am I gonna make right decisions? It's because God organized the mind with higher powers to give direction. We talked about the lower powers, and if we ended with our last talk, you could think the lower powers were just a big problem in the life. But you know, God is the one who gave me desires and appetites and passions. He did it on purpose. His intention was that they would draw me to him. He gave me desires, hungers, that would lead me to seek because of my dissatisfaction. So that, I, for example, he gave us a desire to be beautiful. And it was designed to lead us to seek after holiness of character, to recognize that that is the beautiful object. He's put in men a desire to be strong. But you know, we men are weak. If we knew that God was strong, we would seek him for the strength that we need. He's put in us a desire for love. And if we understood realities, our desire for love would lead us to seek after him. I'm saying that the desires placed in the human mind were calculated to lead us to seek after him. And I feel like launching into a sermon on why they don't do that. But that would be part of the second section. God has given us a faculty of imagination. In AFCO to go, we spent about a half hour on this idea. I am changed by beholding, by thinking. But what if I'm born in the slums, in a wicked place, with parents who don't care, surrounded by the worst, am I doomed to become like the mess that I'm born into? I would be if it weren't for the faculty of imagination. God has given me an ability to look beyond what I can see with my natural eyes. I can behold Jesus in his life, Jesus going to Calvary, Jesus the judge in the judgment, I can consider him in his intercession. I can look back at the flood. I can look into the future at the execution of the wicked, further future to the joys of the redeemed. With my imagination, I'm capable of lifting myself in a way, my mind, out of the mess that I'm in by beholding a better set of scenes, I can become more like him. It's what the imagination was created for. God has given me a will. 
that separates me distinctly from the animal creation, that I can make moral decisions, and what a gift this was. Besides these things that he's granted me inside of me, God created a setting that would draw us to him. A parent in the Garden of Eden, he gave us the home. I don't mean like the double wide that Heidi and I live in. I mean the idea of a Christian family. Do you understand the beauty that God put there? It was designed to draw us to him. Raising children made quite a difference in the experience of Enoch. I remember you read that in Patriarchs and Prophets. The process God created, the setting was beautiful, and then he put us in the woods. He did not put us in the cities. And if you've spent time alone in the woods, thinking and talking to God, you understand how conducive that setting is to your spiritual life. It was one of the things God did for me to make it easier for me to make it to heaven. He gave me the setting of the garden. The garden it was a lesson book. It was designed to picture for me some of the laws of the universe of cause and effect and service and so on, to give me that with other useful employment was designed to keep me away from what they call the devil's shop. I forget the phrase everyone uses, but you know what I mean. Do you understand what I'm saying about the setting? That God created a setting that was to make it easier for us to get to heaven. Music was quite a gift. Designed to make it easy for me to commit his words to my mind designed to lift me from discouragement and despair, to give me a, a way to express thoughts that it seems kind of odd to say them normally because they're too deep or too, I don't know how to say it, but if you read the things in hymns, you'll realize that to just say them, it would feel kind of odd. They're so beautiful. The thoughts are so precious. Song gives us a way to say things over and over that we should think over and over, it's a, it was a gift. My spiritual life resides in my mind, and God has provided a collection of nutrients, plants, and fruits, and grains that would allow this part of my mechanism to really prosper. And God's provided the Sabbath, and the nighttime, and a number of similar gifts, I mean rest. That setting was designed to, to preserve this this whole system so that it could search after him with, I guess this list could be longer, but I think you get the idea that God created a setting to make it easy for me to be saved. Then God provided for me an inheritance. This idea is a deep one and you'd have to study it to know if I was telling you the truth. I really don't think that when we talk about Jesus is a son of God, and that Seth is the son of Adam, that the first thing is a metaphor and the second thing is reality. I think it's backwards. The way I read the Bible, there were sons before there were births. That sonship meant similarity in character, and that the sons of God were those that were like him. And Jesus was the begotten Son of God because he was the, one, the only one that was really like him in every way. And that Adam was a son of God, not by birth, but by being created in his image. And that that's why Jesus said in John uh, 8, I know that you're children of Abraham, but you aren't the children of Abraham. Because if you were the children of Abraham, the works of Abraham you would do. I guess I'm saying that God created a system, I got, I got off the point trying to illustrate it, I don't just inherit from my father. My father wasn't a consecrated man, his father wasn't a consecrated man, and I suppose I really doubt that that man's father was a consecrated man. I inherit from them genetically. You know, genetically isn't the only way I inherit from my father. When I was very young, I watched him, like little children watch their caregivers. And I imitated and became like him by observation. 
we can inherit that way from three and four generations. But God created a system by working with the imagination and with scripture that I can inherit from Abraham. I can inherit from Noah and from Moses. With my mind's eye, by picturing them, by reading about them in scripture, I can be influenced by them and the Bible calls this a type of inheritance. It's that law of beholding we become changed, and so I'm called a son of Abraham. That's deep. You're just going to have to check into that to know whether that's bogus or not. But this is why the cross was such a picture. Jesus could have bore our sins in a dark place privately, but a picture was painted that would allow me to inherit the characteristics of Jesus. I mean, self-sacrifice, self-denial. So much that was there of his love, I need it in my experience, and God has provided that for me. God did more than all these things in that he created the church, and he told the church to work to save me. So the church was given the duty of making sure I understood about the setting, about what was paid, about the model, about the probation, about the powers, about the faculties. The church has been, was the faculty or the thing God put in this earth to make sure that the rest of the gifts did not go unused for a lack of awareness. Can we just confess that God has done a lot to save us? Amen. It's so ironic that people complain about what God has said about the setting as if it makes life difficult. Mm -hmm. As if it wasn't a gift designed to help us make it. Satan knows about this whole thing. And what has he done? I won't go through everything he's done. I don't even know everything he's done, but I'll highlight a few points. He certainly has worked to belittle this in many ways. One of the ways is by saying that it wasn't necessary to make a payment. That in fact there was no debt. It's called the moral influence theory. Another way entirely different is to say that we earn our own way. That we somehow, our righteousness can atone for our sin. You know, we only think that when we aren't thinking at all. Would you just listen to me for a moment? If a man goes to Walmart today and steals a candy bar, and tomorrow he doesn't steal a candy bar, did the day without stealing the candy bar atone for the day he did steal the candy bar? No. Isn't that obvious? If we would just think it through, we would give up the idea of creature merit. As if by doing the right thing in the future, we could atone for some wrong thing we did in the past. <laughs> Satan has worked to, to cause people to think that their case is hopeless, and in that way to blind them to their probation, or to make them think that they're just going to make it, that they're saved and there's, that's all there is to it, so they don't realize that they're on probation. Either way, the gift loses its power in the life. He's worked to make sure that we don't believe the scriptures are reliable. And while how he's been working at that, to make people think that parts of them have been influenced. He's given another spirit. We talked a lot about that in our second talk. You know, he has his own angels. He can't oppose those angels strength to strength. He can't do it the very best he can do is to cause us to neglect to think about them and if we get really deep in darkness to appear as one of them and the but the most common method is just for us to forget about them if he can get that he's made he's done something to cover up what God has done he's made a lot of effort here at the faculties of the mind first of all with those lower powers he is He's confused their purposes, their relation to the higher. I mean that this is the way God intended for it to work. I would be running low on calories. My lower powers would say, you need food. That's their purpose, is to motivate me. 
and I would go in search of food. I would see a grasshopper and an apple. Mm -hmm. All my lower powers say is you're hungry. My reason, my conscience, and my judgment tell me the apple is to eat and the grasshopper isn't. Mm -hmm. And I would eat the apple. This is the way God invented our system. Satan has worked to cause the lower powers to take the lead and for them to go direct to the will and say, not only am I hungry, but I am hungry for such and such. So that instead of us choosing what we do or which passions we follow, you understand Satan has worked also to distract our desires in such a way that they would not be seeking after God. He was so afraid of women seeking after true beauty that he invented jewelry. I mean, some weak substitute, so they would try to make themselves pretty by a superficial adornment. If I would share what I really think, there's nothing particularly wicked about jewelry, inherently. But the cheat is so cheap. The cheat is so nastily shallow that God has asked us to boycott the jewelry business just so the whole world could see what the real beauty is that we ought to be searching after. Satan knows that if we would seek after true love, it would lead us to Christianity. So he's tried to create some substitute of lust that people would go after that thinking it would satisfy, but don't you know they never find it satisfying? And we could go through the rest of those desires, that desire for power that was designed to lead us into godliness. Satan has tried to distract it so that men would go after perhaps wealth or position or brute force, as in sports and games, and try to seek that, that to fill that desire for power by one of these shallow ways. It never does satisfy, but it could distract us from seeking after what our desires were intended to cause us to seek after. And he's made such progress on the imagination with the invention of the television. So that instead of me choosing where I place my imagination so that I can be benefited, someone else places my imagination such that I am further corrupted. And in the process of letting my imagination be led by another, my imagination takes on a life of its own, almost like my desires, until it is guiding the will instead of the will guiding it. Satan, you know, has attacked all of these settings. He's worked to destroy the home, and it surely is much harder for the child raised improperly in a home that doesn't understand and doesn't have proper discipline. It's much harder for that person to get to heaven. Satan has attacked the second part of the setting by creating cities. He got on that very early. I mean, it's in Genesis in the first 10 chapters. And maybe not that the idea of a city is inherently evil, but it robs us of that extra help we needed and that help is found in the woods. I feel like I'm around out of time if I go through the rest, but do you get the picture of what I'm talking about? And we could just go through each one of these in that same way and the article does. This is what God has done for me and you can see Satan has opposed him step on step. He's worked to corrupt the church and put it to sleep so it would not do its duty to make apparent what God has done for all of us. I guess you could say at this point that in the great plan of salvation for my soul personally, up to this point, it just amounts to a great controversy between Christ and Satan. Can you see what I mean by that? That a tremendous amount of work has been done on both sides, and I had nothing to do with any of it. So now let's approach our part. There are some words that make such a difference that has in my life just to have a working definition, understanding of some of these words.
If you were to start reading Jones and Wagner and the message that God sent through them as far as it is reproduced in their literature, you'd find that they do a beautiful, simple job of defining things that we've said all our life and have never really understood. You know what makes the Bible come alive when you understand things, basic things? So let, let's just deal with a few that maybe we're familiar with. In Asco to go, we talked quite a bit about faith. And some of you were there. I indicated that faith is living by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You shouldn't believe it's true just because that's what Lessons on Faith says, and that's a book by Jones and Wagner. But I think if you read the book, you'd find that they prove it very well. <clears throat> faith is living by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then what does faith look like in my experience? When I am reading that Jesus is coming back soon, living by that word causes me to prepare. It gives me joy. When I live by, in the word of God, where it says that there's a way of escape, then that is encouragement to me in my trials. When I read in the word of God that Jesus will never leave me nor forsake me, that looks like courage. When I read a command, faith looks like obedience. When I read a warning, faith looks like preparation. When I read a, a rebuke, faith looks like repentance. What I'm saying is that faith is living by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We haven't even opened our Bibles in this session, and I despise that. But I hope you understand why. It's because I've been trying to go through so much material so quickly. But let's look at this in the Bible, faith, for a minute. Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 4, and we're looking at verse 4. Luke 4, verse 4. And Jesus answered him, that is Satan, saying, It is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. That's how men live. So if I would say something that I do in this business, I choose to live by every word of God. And that gives me access to the power that God has given me in the scriptures. But really, when I live by every word of God, God gives the spirit to those that obey him. And angels are sent to be ministering spirits to those that will be heirs of salvation. So that I'm beginning, when I talk about a pattern, that faith, in a large degree, is what opens my life to the power that God has made available to me in terms of salvation. In fact, faith, when I study enough about what God has said, will restore to me, in a large deal, the setting. Do you understand what I mean by that? That I'll find what God has said about where to live, and because I live by that word, restored to me is that benefit. I'll see what he's had to say about work, that I should do it six days a week. Um, it is as much breaking the fourth commandment to be lazy as it is to not keep the Sabbath. And by keeping myself occupied until he comes, faith restores to me the beautiful setting that God has given What is grace? Grace is anything that I don't deserve. You know, I didn't deserve to have my sins paid for. So this is grace. I didn't deserve to have a model placed before me. So this is grace. God did not owe me a probation. When I committed my first sin, it would have been fair to destroy me. This is grace. He certainly didn't owe us the scriptures, and I could just run through the whole list again. This is grace. What God has done for my salvation is grace. And don't you understand, then, how 
pervasive grace is in our experience. Does it, do you understand a little bit more now what Ellen White says when she says that we're surrounded by an atmosphere of grace? In other words, we don't deserve any of the multitudinous blessings that fill this earth that were designed to help us get to heaven. What is righteousness? There was a lot that Joseph Wagner had to say about righteousness. The summary of it is that righteousness is right doing. And so that phrase, righteousness by faith, becomes very a great deal more understanding. It's right doing by faith. We have a tendency to speak about justification and sanctification quite distinctly, even when we say that they belong together. But they aren't as distinct as we think. Let me explain what I mean. When I say, if I were to say that Cosman is a good man, my words are merely descriptive. All I can do is say what I think or don't. And so if we think of God in our own terms, we might think like this, that he says to a man, you are righteous, and he says it and describes what's not even real. That's about how most of us think about justification. But that's not the nature of the word of God. Turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 55. Isaiah chapter 55. We're looking at verse 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, my thoughts than your thoughts. Listen carefully. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and returns not there, but waters the earth and makes it to bring forth in bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth out of my mouth. It shall not return unto me void. It shall accomplish that which I please. It shall prosper in the thing whereunto I sent it. I'll explain this to you how I understand it. When I choose to put my will on the side of Christ, and I do that by submitting to living by his words. That is faith. Choosing that, making that choice in my life, that faith is counted in the Bible as righteousness. It's not that my past life has been righteous or that my character is righteous, but faith is righteous. I mean, it's the right thing. And when I choose faith, then God says, Eugene, you are righteous. But that is far more than a description. His words have creative power. They go on a mission. They do not return unto him void. They accomplish the thing whereunto they were sent. So that when God said, let the earth spring forth in bud, there were plants. When he said, let them produce abundantly, still today the pine cones being formed on these trees are in fulfillment of that miracle working power that was in the word of God in Genesis chapter 1. When God says to me, Eugene, you are righteous, his word does a work in me and begins a work in me, and that very justifying statement is a sanctifying force. What 
does it mean to be under law? We have taught typically in our evangelistic series that to be under law means to be under the condemnation of the law. And we have gathered that from Romans 3, where it talks about everyone there is, is condemned by the law. They're under law. But that phrase doesn't work too well in about half of the places the phrase under law is used in the Bible. Do you know the Bible says that Jesus was made of a woman made under the law? And the Bible says, Paul said, that to those that are without law as without law, to those that are under law as under law. In other words, he would relate to people under law as if he himself was under law. I'll tell you, it doesn't mean that Paul related to condemned people as if he was condemned. Under law means depending on the law for righteousness. Do you know that Jesus was dependent on the law for righteousness? There was no mercy available to Jesus. Many of the gifts that we describe here that have been made available to us were not in any way available to him. He was made under the law to redeem those that were under the law so that we would no longer need to be dependent on the law for our righteousness, though he was. I think I wrote glow there, didn't I? I was probably thinking about one of the tracks that I keep in my pocket <laughs> subconsciously, but I was, I'm intended to write glory. I suppose I should. <laughs> anyway, I really doubt that this is new to more than two or three of you, this idea. We need to hear a lot of things we already know over and over again. I don't mind telling you what you know. So why don't you tell me, what is the glory of God? It is that. I hope that's done for you what it did for me, revolutionized your Bible reading. What did the message of 1888 do? The message of 1888 was a message about Jesus. What it showed is that Jesus is the one that paid the debt, that Jesus is the one that modeled how to live, that Jesus so associated himself with the word of God that he took that as one of his titles, that Jesus, when he causes his spirit to live inside of me, the Bible calls that Jesus living in my heart. It is the spirit that he sent into my experience. Jesus is the head of the angels. That's why he's called the archangel. And when we talk about Jesus living in my heart, we're talking about him living in my will, guiding me through my higher powers. Have you read, any of you, what Ellen White said about the offering of Cain? I mean that she talked about about the silly, hollow thing that we could discuss almost what I did here. I wrote all of these gifts, and not once did I write the name Jesus. It's an illustration of a mistake in our spiritual life. So why was the sanctuary full of sacrifices, everyday sacrifices. After every sin, blood was let. For various parts of purification, there was a letting of blood. Why blood, blood, blood everywhere? It was because Jesus saves me by having my attention. And when I understand, when I think about Jesus, when I give the honor to Jesus for the gifts that he's given, you know, miracle, miraculous things happen in the book of Acts to honor the name of Jesus. 
I mean that God intended that that name would be exalted. The Father did. And so when, when things were done in the name of Jesus, not like a charm did miracle power come, but it was the pleasure of the Father to do miracles when the name of Jesus was given honor to add honor to that name. A lot of what Joden Wagner had to say was about our Savior. Have you read that book, Christ, Our Righteousness? I recommend it, even if it does teach false doctrine regarding the nature of the Godhead. You know, the nature of the Godhead is such an unimportant topic that you could teach falsely on it if you didn't make a big deal about it, and it would hardly cause a problem. I know that by experience, because when I read this, this book, Christ Our Righteousness, it changed my life, and I never even noticed what it had to say about the preexistence of Jesus. It wasn't until someone pointed it out to me that I went back later and saw it and thought, it's there. But it wasn't the point of the book. It wasn't the goal of the book. And if you've ever met anyone who will talk about our pioneers and their view on the Godhead, and will say that they're following the pioneers because they're teaching the same errors that the pioneers were teaching, I mean, that would be my words, not theirs. You should know that if they're making a big deal about it, they are not following what the pioneers taught about the Godhead. Does that make any sense to what I just said? The pioneers had an opinion, and it was so far from front and center as you have to go searching to find it. That is off topic, but it's related to this idea that Jesus is front and center. He intended to be part of our conversation. Have you read that condemning paragraph in Steps to Christ that was designed to encourage us, where it asks, who has our thoughts? Of whom do we love to converse? So the reason we don't do that is because we're not thinking about him. The reason we're not thinking about him, there's not just one reason, but the big picture is that Satan has been working very hard to make sure that we don't. This whole system was designed to make sure that we would. <coughs> I want to do a review of what we said so far and then add a couple points, and I'm sure our time will be up. Wait a minute. Is our time already up? No. Is that true or not true? Yeah. Is that when my second lecture starts? Did we, did we start at 30 or 45? Start at 45. Good. Okay. <laughs> You know, it takes me some time to prepare for these lectures, and I couldn't just end one and start one and, and be coherent. What we've said so far is that the business of righteousness by faith is very simple. I mean, Ellen White said about it that conversion is simple. I'm quoting to you. Conversion is simple, as simple as can be. It is simply giving God our will. She asked the question, what is the new heart? She answers, it is the new mind. She asks, what is the mind? She answers, it is the will. She asks, where is your will? And she answers, it is either on Satan's side or God's side. The choice is up to you. Conversion is simple, as simple as can be. It is simply giving God your will. I probably could read some of these to you. She except my computer won't wake up that fast. I really know this statement, but some of these words are very common. 
the woman in Australia said, we need something simple, something that folks understand. It is so simple, they hardly dare accept it. Is that all they ask? find it soon. You'll just have to take my word for it until I do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I have somehow restricted it so it's not looking to the manuscript releases. So something simple, something that the soul can understand. Alamite said that it's so simple that they hardly dare accept it. Is that all they ask? What she's talking about? It's simply taking God at his word. Righteousness is not complex. Then why is it that getting to heaven is a problem? It's because of Satan. The truth is, it's only because of Satan. He's the one who has messed up the simplicity of it. He can't take away the simplicity of the gospel, but he can distract us from the word that we submit to, from the gifts that make it easier, easier to submit from the process that would lead us to repentance so that we would submit. What makes salvation difficult is the devil. And what makes it easy the way God intended for it to be easy is by faith going to the scriptures. I guess I would say that when we put our will on his side, as our knowledge grows, it begins to open to us an entire system designed by God to make salvation easy. So that someone asked during the last break, do we get to a point where it's no longer a fight? That's my words, but that was the question. The answer is yes. We come to a point when doing God's will, we will be but carrying out our own impulses. It was already designed to be that way from the very beginning. But there's something more. This, there's a more thorough sermon on this on audio verse called, What Was Accomplished by the Death of Christ? And it all comes from an article by Ellen White titled, What Was Accomplished by the Death of Christ, or something like that. Ellen White explains in this article that not only you and I, but angels are eternally indebted to Jesus for the cross. That human perfection failed in Eden and angelic perfection failed in heaven. And she makes the point that you can understand that if a year from now you have perfected Christian character, your perfect Christian character will not keep you from sinning. Perfect Christian character didn't keep anyone else from sinning. You know, every angel had a perfect character before they sinned. But the thing that will keep you from sinning is the same thing that will keep me from sinning. The angels will keep their attention on Calvary. Through eternity, we will consider the sacrifice made by Jesus. And that picture, working the way God intended the faculties of the mind to work, is efficient. It is effectual. And that is what keeps us from sin. Said another way, the same thing that will keep me from sin after the work of sanctification is done can keep me from sin now when it's far from completed. And it will have to keep me from sin later when there's not even a devil in the universe. There was no devil in the universe when Lucifer became the devil. <coughs> Only the cross is effectual to keep us from sin. Does anyone have any questions before I close a few minutes from now with another big summary? Anything that comes to your mind? 
All right. I love giving big summaries, even if I've just said everything once. I love saying it again. I think repetition deepens the impression. Salvation was never intended by God to be complex. He worked immensely with great power to great lengths to make salvation easy. It's not that this whole thing is salvation. Salvation is simply living by every word of God. It's simply putting your will on Christ's side. But what is all of this? All of this is what God did to make sure that simple thing would work. Because if I, if I did not have my sins paid for, that simple thing wouldn't work. If I didn't have probation granted to me, that simple thing wouldn't be available. If I didn't have the scriptures, it would be utterly impossible. I don't know if I dare say that, because people did live by faith before scriptures existed. <coughs> I think it would be impossible for me. God gave us the scriptures when we needed them. There was a time when people had a beautiful recall of the things God had said. We don't have that anymore, do we? We need the scriptures. God has given them to us. Do they complicate salvation? No, it's a simple process. But don't we need all the grace God has given? And maybe a lot more of it will boil down right here than we'd like to admit. That we would find that what seems like such a great difficulty for us to get to heaven has nothing to do with God's provision. It has to do with Satan taking away from us the setting. And we can't put the entire blame on Satan if we have refused to take back the setting in the ways that God has encouraged us to do. That was too long a sentence to be useful. <laughs> Satan took away the setting from me. Shame on him. But if God has put it back within reach and I don't have it, it's not just Satan's fault. Did you, did you follow that? There are the gifts that God has given to make it easy. But what does it boil down to at the end? Simply taking God at his will. So easy, but we ought to accept it. Let's kneel for a prayer. Our Father in heaven, I thank you for Jesus. I am sorry for how little of my mind and my attention that he has had. And I suppose from my limited time on earth that everyone here or most here ought to feel the same way. I ask then that you would pardon us, that you would teach us by your spirit how to develop habits of thinking and reading and acting and talking that would be an honor to your son, that would bring us access to the great power you've made available, and that you could succeed in saving us with those simple means you've intended. And I ask for these gifts in the name of Jesus. Amen.